I'm Chris Reback. This is Working Capital Conversations. As anyone with even a passing interest knows, over the last decade, private equity has had quite a run. Deal multiples hit record highs. While deal count declined, investment value grew again last year. And so-called dry powder, capital sitting ready to invest, hit a record high of $2 trillion in December 2018 across all fund types. And yet, as always, questions remain. Can prices sustain their extraordinary levels? When PE investors run their crucial return projections, what assumptions are they making about the broader economy or even a recession? And what about politics? Is the industry ready for the 2020 campaign and new questions about capitalism? Few people follow private equity or have more sources and resources in the industry than Chris Witkowski, editor of PE Hub and Buyouts. We discussed what's next for PE, what he hears from investors in private equity firms, and whether they believe PE's incredible run can continue. Before my conversation with Chris, though, I have an ask from me to you. I hope you like these working capital conversations, and if so, I'd appreciate if you'd take a moment, go to iTunes, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. The ratings really matter. They go a long way to helping other people find the podcast. Thank you for considering my request. Okay, that's it. Here's my conversation with Chris Witkowski. Chris, thanks for joining me. I appreciate your time. No worries. Thanks for uh, the opportunity, Chris. So I understand you're coming to me from the newsroom. So um, first of all, I guess that means that there are actually journalists working in the background. And secondly, if news breaks and you got to run, you'll just let me know, yeah? There's a lot going on here, so hopefully it doesn't get too loud. Okay. Uh, well, no, no worries. So let's, uh, let's get right into it. Uh, it has been quite a run for private equity uh, the last few years. Um, so let's start with your broad overview. Um, from what you see and the people you talk with, where are we in the PE life cycle? Well, it's, it's, it's hard to say. I have been hearing for the past 10 years that we are in the late stages of the cycle, that we're at the peak um, that everything's going downhill from here, that there's an impending recession two, two years from now. And again, I've been hearing that for 10 years. Yeah. <laughs> so um, it's kind of hard to say where we are. I would say from, from people I talk to, from things I'm seeing, behaviors I'm seeing, that it really does seem like we're at the peak, um, that it, it can't get any, any more uh, energetic, vigorous, uh, expensive than this. But, you know, I think that every year and the, the next year comes by and, the, and we see no downturn, we see no slowdown, whether that's in fundraising, um, whether that's in uh, deal flow, whether that's in pricing, uh, n- nothing seems to be going down. So it's hard for me to say. I mean, I guess that I could say uh, with, with a little bit of confidence that it really does seem like the peak. Um, there's been so much money raised. Yeah. And so much money sitting, um, as we say, like on the sidelines or under the metaphorical mattresses. This is money that private equity funds have raised that they have not yet spent. Um, they, uh, colloquial, colloquial known as uh, dry powder. Um, there's about uh, $2 trillion of dry powder um, that's just sitting unspent since, uh, you know, as of December. And so that, that money is going to ensure that deals will continue to get done and likely will continue to get done at high prices. So I don't see any slowdown in the immediate future um, from, from, uh, from my perspective. 
So I hear you for uh, about 10 years now, I guess you've been, you know, just on the, the peak of, of PE and, and, you know, any moment now it's, uh, you know, it's going to be on the, the downturn. And that's, I guess, been a 10 year run, as you point out. And for at least two years, uh, there's been the, the talk of a recession, um, which hasn't occurred. But now looking forward, um, as, I'm kind of curious about what you're seeing or, or perhaps what you're hearing. Um, as PE investors are running their crucial return projections, are, are they assuming there will be a recession in the next five years for determining their base case returns? I mean, obviously, that's, uh, that's a key to, to getting a, you know, to them to determine whether they do a deal or not. Do you have any sense of forward-looking how folks are, are, are seeming? The, um, the, they will tell you that they are, uh, you know, they sort of always um, factor that into their into their calculations when they're looking at a deal. Um, Do you believe they them? They will also tell. <laughs> I don't, because honestly, um, t- to me, uh, valuations are so high, and the likelihood is that five, you know, six, seven years from now, um, it's going to be a different environment. And so uh, that you would be able to sell a company for higher than you bought it at this peak, I find that hard to hard to believe. And so what they need to do then, of course, is um, find ways to grow it. And that that is really the strategy now is that they know that they're they're paying high prices. And so the question is, how do we grow this so that we can make more money off of it once we sell it? Um, and so uh, I, I really don't think that they're necessarily factoring a, a recession into their, calcul- into their deal calculations. Uh, I, I don't think so. They are, however, um, they have for the past couple years been warning their investors, uh, mm-hmm. what we call limited partners, yeah. the uh, institutions that, um, you know, that invest in private equity funds, basically give private equity guys their money and say, you know, go, go, go make us a return. Um, they have been telling their limited partners, warning them almost that returns overall will be coming down, and and that is uh, because of the environment we're in, because prices are higher, because competition is so fierce, that the idea of you know getting sort of a exclusive deal, not having to go through an auction, not having to pursue an asset that's 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 being bid up, uh, those days are gone. Um, or, or for the most part, those those days are gone. You know, being able to find a so so called proprietary deal that's 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 real hard these days. And I'm curious about the LPs. Um, you you wrote back in January. Uh, from the looks of things, LPs aren't pulling back from the asset class even a little bit. This was back in January, of course. We ran through some of the largest public systems in the country to find out what they're up to. Most are either maintaining their PE pacing or ramping it up. It's now about two months after you first wrote that. Um, is that still what you're seeing, or given the guidance that you just discussed, that that uh, the general partners that the PE firms might be giving their investors, is that changing a little bit, even since uh, you know when you first wrote that back in January? Well, what, what I wrote in January um, y- y- was true even even as GPs had been warning of falling returns for about a year and a half. Wow. And so it's not like, you know, it's not like that sort of warning was new. Um, you know, LPs are fully aware of this, and yet they are, they are fully committed to this asset class. Uh, p- part, part of that has to be because um, pu- public pension systems in the U.S., many of them, are um, f- almost at crisis level uh, uh, funding. 
um, you know, they, they need to be able to fulfill um, their obligations to their retirees um, looking forward years and years. And so uh, they, they, they measure that as sort of a funding level. And many, many public pension systems in, in this country are well below where they need to be in order to fulfill their obligations to their retirees. And so that's because of various reasons, because of falling investment returns, but also because states have stopped uh, contributing what they, what they should be contributing to their pension plans. And so to make up for that gap, that funding gap, um, uh, these pensions, you know, maybe starting around the early 2000s, started to pour more money into riskier investments, you know, so-called riskier investments, including private equity. And today that, that state of, uh, you know, that status has only gotten worse, uh, that funding status. And so these massive public pension plans need to continue to take more risk in order to get higher return. And so private equity has been performing well for them overall. Um, you could look at an individual plan here or there and say, that, oh, private equity hasn't done that well for them. But overall, private equity has done well um, over the past few years. A lot of, a lot of times, uh, a lot of measurements will show private equity will track the public markets. And so as public market returns go up, you could, you could see private equity also going up. But um, private equity overall has returned higher than public markets. Yeah. Um, depending on you know what measurements you're looking at, but LPs have certainly not backed away from it. And as I wrote in January, uh, their pacing for 2019 is either you know uh, uh, remaining the same or uh, putting more money into private equity. And that's you know that's definitely true. That hasn't changed at all. And and I want to ask you about that public market private market connection and and how they um, and and you know how they're tracking together or not tracking together. But first, just to pick up on, on you know, you just mentioned the, the public pensions and a significant yeah. component <laughs> of that. Yeah, we, a, a not small issue. Um, and obviously, a, a, a part of that, significant part of that um, is politics. And so I want to talk to you about uh, American politics, the midterms saw, and private equity. In the midterms, of course, saw uh, a big freshman class of Democrats, and they are, you know, many of whom are not afraid to call themselves social Democrats. Um, now the 2020 race has started, and one of the candidates the other day, Colorado's John Hickenlooper, a, a, a business person, he's a small business person before he was uh, governor, um, couldn't even really answer the question um, of whether he's a capitalist. Um, what's the political outlook for PE? That's a great question. It, it, this is probably my favorite topic, the intersection of uh, politics and private equity or politics and Wall Street. I, I think it's fascinating. And um, here, here, here's, here's the, the irony is that you, we, we have had a, you know, a good amount of you know, so-called populist uh, politicians, right, starting with our president. And, um, you, you know, you, you could look at a few others who, who are, consider themselves populists or even um, Wall Street reformers. And so he, I, let's take um, the governor of New Jersey, right, uh, uh, Phil Murphy. Um, he campaigned, uh, among other things, one of his campaign promises that he, he was going to divest from private equity in the public pension system. Uh, he, he acknowledged that, that they have a public pension crisis in New Jersey, and uh, he had certain plans to fix that, but, but one of those was to stop paying you know, high Wall Street fees. That's, that's kind of the, uh, the, the uh, catch-all phrase that you hear a lot. Um, and so he, part of his campaign platform was to divest from, from private equity. So he gets elected, 
and we track that pension, there's no hint of divestment from private equity. They, in fact, they can't divest from private equity because, again, they, that portfolio has been their best performing portfolio mm-hmm. for many years. And so th- that pension is in a funding crisis. Uh, it would be, uh, it would be um, a mistake to get rid of private equity the way it's performing now. Now, it's easy to go out to voters and say, you know, we pay these billionaires millions of dollars in fees. And for what? You know, but um, that's not the whole story. And right now, it seems like in New Jersey and some other states, private equity is, is really helping to, to keep those pensions afloat, um, to keep that gap that funding gap that these that these pensions face, uh, you know, is somewhat realistic. So do you do you um, see do you see the, competing pressure? Because obviously Murphy, not an unsophisticated business person himself, and right. and so you know his talking about pulling out of PE, um, he surely knew what you just said that from a performance point of view, that would be extremely difficult uh, to do if he has particularly if, you know to fulfill. Um, pension obligations. And yet, on the other hand, um, almost, and I think this is one of the areas that you find yourself uh, intellectually kind of intrigued about, I, I certainly do as well, um, a, a, an increased questioning around, well, many, many questions around questions of, of equality and inequality, gaps, um, return gaps, income gaps, all sorts of, you know, gaps in, in this country that are raising some questions about the way markets are regulated, you know, broadly overstated and say some questions about capitalism, but I, I think it's more around um, proper regulations, around tax policies, uh, and, and, and that sort of thing. Do you see risk or, or, you know, from that point of view, how do you see the politics and private equity? Right, I, I really don't see that much that much risk in terms of let's say like increased uh, increased scrutiny of the private equity market or yeah, something like that. Yes, yeah. Um, you, you know, w- w- the, the big uh, the, the big uh, catastrophe in the private equity world a few years ago was this um, increased SEC scrutiny that came about um, as as sort of one of the uh, results of the great financial crisis. You know, one of one of the, one of the fixes was that um, the SEC was going to uh, pay a lot more attention to private equity. Uh, private equity firms would, would be forced to um, register as uh, advisors um, and fall under uh, uh, SEC uh, exam regime, as they call it, SECs, able to come in uh, periodically and look through all the books and all the contracts and, and scrutinize everything. You know, this is something that private equity never had to deal with before. Um, and so th- this was uh, looked on as potentially uh, a catastrophe for the industry that um, this would affect the industry's uh, ability to compete because you know being private and, and not being transparent and not having any of your any of the details of your investments or, or how your funds work out there uh, gave private equity firms an advantage. Well, you know this happened. SEC came in. A lot of firms were were uh, were, were punished. <laughs> you know. It, it, in varying degrees of intensity, yeah. yep. uh, you know, all, all sort of fines in order to wipe away the uh, the, the examinations or the investigations, and um, and that's it. You know, the industry adapted. Uh, limited partners were, were very happy that um, some bad practices that, that were going on were brought to light and uh, and, and stopped. 
Um, and, and, and that was kind of it. And, and so to me, like that was, the, that was the real, uh, that was the real risk when, when that, when that came about, because that, that had real practical everyday, uh, real life implications, you know, here is a regulator digging into your books. I don't really see, you know, it going much beyond that. Um, you know, I, I mean, we're not talking about the public market. Private equity, they don't have to worry about Bernie Sanders? I don't think so. I really don't. I mean, I, I think that, I think, again, I would look, I w- to me, it, it would work on a more, um, a much broader level than private equity. You know, if, mm-hmm. if, if somebody like Bernie Sanders is going to come in and um, start start to try to regulate the capital markets, or um, I don't know, start, start, you know, impose a sort of billionaire's tax. You know, that's where I think um, you know individual private equity uh, managers will get hit for sure. But I just don't see what what they could do, you know, to the industry to really uh, increase regulation beyond what it, what's already happened. Um, there there are certain s- smaller details. Where, uh, for instance, this is sort of the performance fee that that a, that a GP collects on profit. Um, uh, they could change that tax treatment, and you know that would cost a little bit more money. But but again, then the the, the private equity manager would would um, eventually put that cost onto his investors. Mm. Um, and so it's 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 hard for me to see uh, how how PE would would really be impacted by that. Uh, you know. I could see how the broader capital market, how the broader economy could be impacted by somebody like a Bernie Sanders. Um, but, you know, as, as I don't see anybody really targeting P.E. right now. Let me follow up then on uh, the public uh, equity market, private capital uh, that you kind of touched on a little bit earlier. I don't know if you uh, happen to see Bain's uh, 2019 global private equity report, a lot of um, important and, and uh, interesting material there, including this line. Um, we see fundamental shifts happening in capital markets that are likely to drive a long-term trend toward much larger private capital and private equity opportunities versus traditional public equity models. This ongoing movement will have seismic impacts for providers of capital, investors of that capital, and for the companies owned by a widening variety of private models. Uh, They conclude it portends a future in which a much larger share of capital flows into private markets. What's your take on that? Um, well, I think that, I think that part of what they're talking about there has to do with, with what we were talking about earlier is the amount of capital being raised into the private markets. Um, there, there is so much capital being raised by, by private market funds, not just, not just private equity, but also, um, real assets, also real estate, um, all kinds of different private strategies. And, um, you know, it continues to take a, take a bigger, take a bigger slice of the market. Um, and at the same time, you, you've seen sort of the IPO market um, uh, l- lose its luster over the past few years. Mm. And um, you, you, you kind of hear about companies uh, wanting to stay private longer, avoiding going public because of the scrutiny that comes with, comes with the uh, p- public filing. And so that, I think that's, that's what they're talking about in that line is just that you, you, we're, we've been seeing this trend for the past few years, and, and it just, there, there doesn't seem to be any sense that it's going to slow down. Um, institutional investors like public pensions, endowments, insurance companies, um, other types of institutions are, are just pouring money into the private markets, and um, 
you know, I, 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 there just doesn't seem to be any hint that that's going to slow down anytime soon. You, you wrote about this uh, just about a month, maybe a little bit more ago, um, secondaries and their incredible continued growth uh, over the last year. Um, you, given what you're saying right now, you're still seeing secondaries as a, uh, a strong growth opportunity? Oh, absolutely. That That is, um, you know, I, I mentioned the, the intersection of politics and private equity is one of my favorite topics. Secondaries is also <laughs> one, of, one of my other favorites. You're a fascinating and, guy. Uh, I mean, you, you get you get invited <laughs> to, you, you're, a, you're a hit at all the parties? No, not at all. <laughs> Nobody seems to want to talk about this stuff. Uh, so uh, it's, it's interesting that um, you have an illiquid ac- asset class like private equity where the expectation is that you're going to hold an asset for, you know, six, 10, 15 years. Well, there's, there is a way to make it more liquid and that's the secondary market. And, um, this, this, this side of the market has grown, um, over say the past, um, you know, you could say maybe the past 20 years to, uh, where it hit the estimated, uh, the estimated transaction total, Last year was somewhere somewhere around 70, 70 billion or more. Um, this is when I started covering private equity in two thousand and eight. I think it sat around six billion or something like that. Incredible. So it's incredible, yeah, yeah, how this side of the market has grown, and um, it's going to continue to grow because as we see more money flowing into the, as they say, primary side, uh, funds being raised. Um, there's going to be this need for some of those investors in the funds to get liquidity, whether that's because, you know, they're in some crisis situation or because they're just sort of managing their portfolio and they've decided that, you know, um, they, they found five private equity managers that they no longer want to be to do business with. And so they've decided to get them out of the portfolio, whatever the reason um, this this idea of portfolio management has become almost routine on the part of institutional investors like public pensions, and so I think that um, these limited partners, these institutions, have an expectation now of liquidity um, mm-hmm. as part of their private equity program. And so, uh, you know, the secondary market, you know, again, as I, as I was saying, money money's flowing into it, flowing into those strategies, transaction volume way up. And just there's there's no sense that any of it's going to slow down. Now the secondary market. Big question with the secondary market is, if the economy uh, uh, dips or if we go into a downturn, um, what happens with the secondary market? That is a big question that, that that's out there because secondary sort of died after uh, after 2008. There was a couple years where um, secondaries really, you know, sort of disappeared, mm-hmm. and you and you would think, well, you know, why 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 would that be? Because if you have, you know, if you have a lot of distressed investors that that want to, uh, like, let's say, uh, let's say, uh, California pension, you know, that uh, needs liquidity, why wouldn't they just? Why wouldn't they all be selling on the secondary market? And it, it just didn't happen after mm-hmm. the great financial crisis. Yeah. So. Yep. Um, the big question out there will be, you know, what happens if, if we go into a downturn? What happens with that market that's been humming along for the past five, seven years? And that, that question is out there. But, you know, secondaries is, uh, is an amazing part of the, this market growth. Let me switch gears to uh, something else that you wrote about, uh, you, the, the publication, more broadly uh, recently. And that is um, you recently ran your fourth annual Women in PE issue. You profiled 10 women who are thriving in private equity, 
Um, more broadly, which is excellent, this, and the stories were, were excellent. Um, more broadly, how, how would you say the sector is doing in terms of women leadership, influence, and opportunities? It's not doing that great, um, you know. Not, not, you know, similar to uh, the, the broader fi- financial world, it's not doing that great, but it's making progress slowly. Um, you know, and so you can see the numbers in that article. I don't have them right in front of me, but I mean, there is a there is a, a definite lack of women at first of all at leadership positions at private equity firms. Um, and then just a general uh, uh, absence of women um, in private equity. Um, but again, you know, the, the numbers continue to climb. Um, you know, there, there are young women who uh, are getting their MBAs and who want to go into private equity. So it's not like, um, you know, it's not like there's the talent pool isn't there. It's just that the recruiting processes have not yet you know, I don't know what the word is, evolved to where they should be, I guess. Um, and so you do have some standout firms, especially the bigger firms like the, your Carlisle's and KKR's and Blackstone's and TPG's that are, um, you know, definitely a bit better at that and, um, uh, you know, have, have programs in place not only for, for recruitment but also for, you know, an important aspect of this story is not, not just recruiting women into the industry but also – um, retaining them, and especially at that at that crucial time um, in a in a woman's career, where you know she sort of has to make the decision between having a family or continuing her her career, and that is a big uh, stumbling point, I think, for 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 a lot of women move, trying to move into leadership ranks. Um, and so, you know, there are some some great examples of firms that have um, uh, uh, maternity and paternity leave policies that can really help women. Um, you know have families and also uh, continue on their career path. But really, I mean, I've talked, I've talked to so I've talked to over the, over the past few years, I've talked to a lot of women who are at that point in their career where they're, they're deciding to have children and their firms and their firms, first of all, have, have maybe never even had a woman on staff or maybe only one or two and, and have no, no parental leave policy at all. And so they're having to negotiate and basically create <laughs> create their own policy and bring that to their boss and say, you know, well, this is how other people do it. This is how we should do it. And so it's still, uh, you know, there's still a long way to go. Um, and what, you know, what, what we tried to do in that issue, and we, we have that issue every year in, in March, is uh, include a story, you know, a general overview about how things are going, you know, general status about women in PE, and then also um, do these sort of mini profiles of um, kind of like, superstar women who, who get recommended to us from our sources say, yeah, you definitely should talk to her and just point out that, you know, here, here are women, you know, doing the job, um, yeah. you know, succeeding, thriving, and here they are. And, and, and here's who they are. We just think that's important to just have that out there. Yeah. You know? Well, a lot of what you're describing, um, I have heard as well. I had a conversation uh, a few months ago with Janet Cowell, uh, CEO of Girls Who Invest. I don't know if you've ever uh, had that mm. opportunity to talk with her. Um, and and just what you describe, creating the pipeline, creating the internal systems, creating the policies and the mentorships and creating women in the leadership positions so that the policies have a better chance of, of changing. That's a, a, a lot of what you're describing is, is exactly what uh, um, other groups are are seeking and and to to be fair, a number of the firms are you know I think it's it's in 
um, everyone's consciousness. Um, but I think also it's uh, you know everyone would agree it's time for uh, results as well. Is that uh, does that jive with what you're yeah. hearing? Yeah, mentorships is a word we hear over and over again when, when we report on this, and that, it, that is just such an important aspect of this um, because because you know you know men have it. Uh, it's built in, you know, from, from years and years and years into college buddies and, and, uh, you know, uh, professors and things like that. And, and women don't have it. And so, um, they, they often are having to, um, you know, reach out to men for, uh, as, as mentors. And many of them I talk to, you know, have successfully done that. Um, but really that, you know, the, a lot of these groups that are, that are, have been forming over the past few years, um, you know, are definitely really pushing that networking aspect. Um, yeah. Janet so, uh, Howell was very, very yeah. interesting. She uh, not only used to be in the industry, but uh, um, is former uh, treasurer of the state of North Carolina, and uh, they're, they're pretty yeah. active. It's, uh, um, it's an interesting group. Just to, to, to close out, um, and, and probably the, the hardest topic for you to talk about, um, you. Tell me about your background. <laughs> How did you get into covering private equity? Were you always a business reporter? Uh, tell me about you. No, um, I started out uh, in my professional career um, in community newspapers outside of Philly, and wow. um, was just you know writing about um, you know I was I was a police reporter for two years and uh, covered uh, uh, municipalities and things like that. And, and loved it, and um, you know knew that uh, journalism was was going to be my my career. And then um, my my now wife, um, who was my girlfriend at the time, you know said, "Hey, we should we should move to New York." <laughs> yeah, why not? Okay. So uh, you know we were both looking for jobs for a while, and and I stumbled on a job that was writing about. Um, the boards of directors of Fortune 500 companies. It was a trade, mm. trade, trade public, a weekly, weekly trade magazine, just just for them. Mm. So it was an odd audience of about like 75 old guys, and um, uh, and they paid like you know 20 grand for <laughs> right, for right. issue or something like that. Of course. And, and so um, you know that's how I that's that's where I started, and um, you know moved moved, uh, moved moved around for a little while, and then. Um, Ended up in, oh, I guess it was 2008, working, doing a short stint with Lenny Dystra, the former baseball player. Yeah, yeah, former Mets Phillies who ran into a little bit of trouble. Well, he was, at that time, he was trying to start his media empire. He Mm. had come up with this idea to uh, 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 start a magazine that would be in every athlete's locker. And, it, and, and the whole point of it would be, um, you know, what to do with your money after you retire, how to make sure that you, you aren't broke once you can't play anymore. So a good idea. It is a good idea. Um, the magazine, yeah. It, yeah, but it just didn't work and uh, for various reasons, which I won't go into here. But uh, uh, I, I uh, was only there for, for a few months, and that, that, that sort of imploded and then found myself uh, that summer of 2008 um, looking for a job. And I uh, finally found one in, in, at a company called PEI, which covers private equity, and started there the Monday after Lehman collapsed. And so my first uh, exposure to private equity is basically writing about bankruptcies wow. <laughs> for about a year. <laughs> yeah, so uh, that's, that's how I got into it. But, they, but and, they, don't, uh, they, don't, they don't blame the crash on you, though, right? That's just coincidental, the whole 2008 <laughs> timing. <laughs> 
no. I think so. I think uh, so. Me, me, me and Lenny. Yeah, I, I hope not. Yeah, no, 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 no. Yeah, not not that part of Lenny. <laughs> Maybe if he could hit a ball like Lenny, but uh, not the other parts of uh, of his background. And 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 you, and what's it like to cover the industry? I mean, you, I mean, to to turn back. I mean, writing about the seventy five, you know, wealthy people that you talked about. Um, you, you are covering an industry with a lot of big personalities, um, you know, not uh, a, a not a little bit of ego, um, a great deal of humility in the right places when you find it. Um, what, what do you how do you find covering the industry? What do you like about covering it? And uh, what do you maybe not like as much as you wish you did? The way I – what I don't like is a lot of times having to sort of officially deal with the firms because you're only going to hear the press release, mm-hmm. and it's just not helpful, and it doesn't make for a good story. I mean, ultimately, I'm, I'm a storyteller, and I want a great story. And so, I, you know, it may, may sound weird, but I, <laughs> I don't love directly dealing with the firms. The way I've done it for these many years now is, is that I talk to the limited partners and I have a lot of sources in, in that community, um, whether you know public public pension officials, endowment folks, uh, people at insurance companies, people you know. I, I sort of view these people in, on the LP side as like your your regular people, um, almost like the, uh, the 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 blue collar workers of of the industry. Mm. And the, these are basically just you know nine to five people with a salary. And um, sort of, strangely enough, dealing with uh, bil- billions of dollar funds that, that they have to decide whether they want to commit uh, you know, money to. And so um, I have just had a lot of success and a lot of fun covering the industry from that perspective. And I think it's, I think it's the best way to do it because otherwise you're just sort of getting spin and fluff and, the, and there's really not, not a story. Um, and so... That, that's what I love about it. And, uh, you know, sort of that, that LP world, um, that's, how, that's how I've always done it. And um, I think that it, it makes for the best stories. Well, that's fascinating. And that, that uh, explains a lot because you are must-read material. So uh, um, interesting to hear part of what drives it. Chris, thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for the conversation. Absolutely, Chris. I really appreciate it. 